This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, it's not September yet, so it's still Black August, the month when we pay respect to political prisoners held by the United States. The Black is Back Coalition recently held a national conference on political prisoners. The Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee runs a project and Twitter account that empowers political prisoners to tell their own stories. And a longtime prisoner of the state of California reports on how incarcerated people are coping with COVID-19. But first, David West played for 15 seasons with the National Basketball Association and is a two-time NBA All-Star and NBA champion. West is now living comfortably in California, serving as chief operating officer of the Professional Collegiate League, which aims to put money in college athletes' pockets and prepare them for a future outside of sports. It's long been common to hear black folks say that high-paid athletes should pool their capital to develop a stronger black American economy and politics. We asked David West his take on that line of thought. I usually and typically say that if you're informed, I think that's the most important part, is that other cultural groups don't necessarily use their athletes and their entertainers to promote and get through the sort of social programs and social ideas that organize cultural groups. And so we're unique in that sense because a lot of times or oftentimes the sports and the entertainment fields are our outlets or have been the outlets because we can do those things at a level that other folks simply can't do. And it has allowed certain levels of access. But I always say that we have brothers that have that are working, that are doing their part to the degree that it's their part and to the degree that we reasonably should have athletes and entertainers and other folks like that in positions to direct where we're going as a cultural group and society. So it's something I've heard throughout the years. I always try to let people know that the first most important part for athletes is that they're informed because just from personal experience, you have a lot of brothers that genuinely want to help, but they don't have the information, nor do they have the knowledge within themselves to feel comfortable walking in those roles. Yes, you've spoken about the knowledge base of Black players in the NBA. Lots of sports fans wonder about what their star players are talking about, and lots of others of us do too. Are there lots of political conversations in the locker rooms in your experience? So I will say that politics makes its way and has made its way into sports more than it has in the past in recent history, simply because you have so much information in your phone. And where we had years and years ago where we know that guys weren't prone to pick up a newspaper and sit down and read for an hour. But now with the digital messaging in your phone uh, and social media at the level that it is, players are getting informed on their own. 
And through different mediums, video, audio books, their awareness is raising. I think that's why you see more players having the audacity to speak out publicly about the things that they know and things that they're comfortable with. And so those conversations are evolving. Those conversations are being had. And I think you see that in the way that players are expressing themselves more so now than they did even when I started some years ago. It's just a different time right now, again, because of the mediums that players are receiving information in. So they're able to consume it, read things, like I said, get information sort of from videos and the different mediums, and it's helping raise their level of consciousness and their level of knowledge. Now, it may not be the level of consciousness that affords them the opportunity to be in a position of leadership, be in a position to gain political power, anything like that, but it is moving guys beyond just this stigma of being athletes. And how's management coping with that? Well, I think you have a group of guys now who understand more than guys in the past of their power. Players are making demands about hiring practices to the extent that they can control and create opportunities for other people that come from the communities that they come from. Players are making demands in the idea that they know that one of the things that you have an advantage of as an NBA player is knowing that, that not many people in the world can do what you do. And that is the leverage that players, I think, are starting to come into awareness about. So it's we do something that not many people in the world can do. And because we do that, that is some leverage that we demand certain things be made. So the idea of defunding the police, you know, you have a large player movement at a very high level working on this initiative to make sure that community policing replaces sort of this idea of law enforcement policing. And you have professional athletes who are championing a cause like that. You have professional athletes who are demanding that the people in executive leadership of these basketball teams that they play for hold community leaders and hold politicians in the cities and the states that they play in, that they hold them accountable. And again, I think that voice is coming from a position of understanding, uh, a position that these guys are learning more about what they do and the power that they actually have. And how does your professional collegiate league fit into changing the relationship between players and the owners of the game and changing Mm. Black folks' position in the general society? Well, what we're working to do is create an equitable playing field in college sports. College sports right now is a highly exploitative system that predominantly Black players in football and basketball produce all levels of income for all layers of society that are involved in these campuses and these sports. And the only group that isn't positively impacted monetarily are the communities, are the Black families and Black communities that these players come from. And so what we start with is compensation, that if you're competing in college sports, that you should be compensated, period, right? Because we all know that players are brought to institutions of higher learning to play sports and to be unpaid labor. And we are against that model at point one. And our model creates ownership for the players. It creates equitable trade for the players and the fact that they will be compensated for the work that they do. And then we also, the other part of it is we also seek to educate them in a non-traditional manner, meaning that we're not going to bring them into educational curriculums that are situated around their availability as athletes. Right. So that's what happens with the majority of the athletes. They're brought to campuses 
and they are made to take academic courses that don't interfere with their athletic pursuit. And we are against that as well. So our model is a complete disruption of the current model that's in place that we feel is detrimental to the long-term effects of the athlete. In your interview with Danny Haifong, you said that America hasn't figured out how to be a democratic state, and you compared the U.S. rather unfavorably to China in some key respects. Yes. We have been a nation for years that has talked about things that we simply don't do, and we've projected ideals, and we've projected these democratic principles that we simply don't practice. And we are at a point in history where other nations have figured that out and other people around the world are standing against the imperial thrust of the West and they are making a stand in a peaceful manner, right? So when we talk about China and the rise of China, what they've done has been in a peaceful manner and in a way that they speak to the world differently. And the American empire hasn't been able to speak to the world in a non-militaristic way. And that language is no longer working in the world. We see alliances being broken. We see other nations, again, who are organized around peace and the humanity of their citizens and working toward developing better lives for their citizens. And we are a nation that is trying to hold on to an outdated model of governance, of organizing and really interacting with people domestically, day-to-day, and globally, day-to-day. You use words like imperialism and U.S. empire. That's not only not the usual vocabulary for professional athletes, but it's not part of the vocabulary that most folks in the United States use in day-to-day politics. Right. I find that that's probably an issue in our society. We don't have honest dialogue and honest conversations. And I think that it has led to these circular conversations, these conversations that are nestled in platitudes and ideas that make us feel good, but don't actually lead to solving the problems of our society. They don't actually lead to the conversations that we have and the the journalism that we accept today doesn't lead to the kind of substantive conversations that we need to have to continue to move our society forward in a positive direction. So I just believe in using clear language. I don't believe that folks own the right to monopolize the use of words. So as America talks about and labels other nations, I think that we oftentimes think we own the right to define words. And again, that's an outdated concept that doesn't do us any good as a society, and it doesn't do our young people any good because all we're doing is continuing to stir confusion and chaotic ideas, right? Instead of creating a place and a society where we can have open dialogue, where we can address misinformation, we can address things that are simply not true and correct the record with fact. Most of what the Black movement in this country, the Black liberation struggle, if you will, the African-centered study that has come out and been made available to us in this society, right? And it goes back years and years and years, starting with the Pan-African movements in the Caribbean. We have had to create this whole knowledge base to counter the ideas that were propagated and promoted against Black people originally, right? So we have had to overcome the literary terrorism 
that European people created in sort of justifying their treatment of our ancestors. And that literary terrorism continued on throughout the ages. So every few years, right, people were writing things to continue to validate stereotypes about Black people and what we were. So we had to create an entirely other form of education to counter this miseducation. And part of what our struggle has been in the Western context has been rewriting the misinformation about our people and about our history throughout history. And we're at a moment now where you have young people who are learning on their own. We have young people who understand that what they're learning in the halls and walls of colleges and universities and high schools all around this country is information that is misinformed from its beginning, right? One of my coaches, Coach Kerr, I was on a call with him a few weeks ago, and he legitimately said he didn't learn about, this man is in his 50s, he didn't learn about Tulsa and Black Wall Street until a few years ago. And he said this is something that he felt like he should have learned while he was in high school, right? Like, why does a man who's been really successful, a white man who's been really successful in America, but didn't have to learn about something like Black Wall Street, right, and the effects that that had, and that whole period, the domestic terrorism that undermined Black development and Black progress in this country. We're literally fighting a system that produced and has produced misinformation and has produced undereducation and miseducation for generations of people. And part of who we are, right, intrinsically in this society has been a people that has been you know, stereotyped and malaligned with all of the sort of negative markers that you can talk about and create amongst inhuman civilizations have been dumped onto Black people, all the way into the religious context where we are supposedly cursed, right? So we have been in this fight for quite some time, but it's important that we continue to have the courage to speak the language that people understand because we are on the right side of right, and we are working toward righting wrongs of a historical nature and righting wrongs that are continually perpetrated on us today. So that is why I speak the way that I speak, because I think it's important that we always add context. That'll be the last thing I could really say is that I think using the right language always allows us to frame the conversations in the context in which we speak the right way. In terms of the knowledge base and expanding the knowledge base, people like yourself have the opportunity to travel the world and see different peoples in their own environments. And now lots of NBA players are getting a chance to see a whole different world in China. How do you think that affects their worldview, how they look at their own situation in the United States? I think it helps. And I don't know if this is the intent, but I think what has happened is with us, right, we have only known one way. And Black people in general, when I was younger, before the NBA, right, our, our family, the most traveling we did was we went down south, right? We took a trip from New Jersey down south. That was it. You know, Black families don't necessarily, you don't grow up thinking about, you know, maybe you think about going to Africa one day, but Black people don't necessarily, and at least in my household, we didn't grow up thinking about traveling the world and seeing and visiting different corners of the world. It's just not what we were brought up to think about and really dream about. And what happens is the game starts to take you places. That's one of the reasons why we play. I tell people all the time, like I wasn't developing as a person outside of the game of basketball or the sport. The sport is where I was able to grow and develop for a long time in my life. 
confines of basketball was the only place I was comfortable. So sports allows us opportunities to go places that we probably wouldn't go, to see things that we probably wouldn't see, meet people that we would probably wouldn't meet. And when you travel under the banner of sports, everyone's welcoming, everyone's bringing you in. But you get a chance to see how other folks live. And oftentimes we think, and we've arrogantly carried this idea of exceptionalism, right? Like we live a life and live at a level that other people simply can't live. And the privileges and the benefits that we have in our society benefit outweigh and outnumber all other societies and the benefits that potentially exist in those societies. We have been really driven toward materialism, right, in this country. So we don't necessarily find the beauty in things that other people around the world find beauty. So one of the things that I was fortunate to really understand, and I didn't understand it as much here as I did when I traveled to Africa for the first time, the importance of sitting down and sharing a meal and what that event is like on the continent of Africa, particularly in West Africa, and what that symbolizes, right? The connection, the connectedness, the unity. And those are the things that you realize are more valuable you know, in America, traditionally, maybe on Sunday, we sat down and ate as a family, but not every single day. As you get older, right, you're a young kid, you're, talking, you're grabbing stuff from a fast food restaurant, in and out, but they still find value in some of the things that we've sort of pushed to aside. And so you realize that nations and societies are organized differently than we are, not necessarily looking at it as good or bad, but organized differently. And we oftentimes aren't able to accept that people can exist in a different capacity, that they don't have to do exactly what we want them to be and what them to do. And even as black athletes coming from marginalized communities, we sometimes accept and feel like we are exceptional. And when you go, um, and I remember listening to our you know, old black lecturers talk about this idea of this patronizing attitude that African-Americans oftentimes adopt when going to the continent. And that was something that I wanted to check myself on, that I went and approached Africa in particular in a way that was unifying. And I didn't think that I was in any different stanchion in life simply because I was coming from America. And traveling to China was the same thing. You've got to understand that other people have the right to organize themselves in their best interest. And this is something that colonialism and the enslavement period took away from African people and African societies. But nations like China, getting outside of their hundred years of colonialism, they have been able to return themselves to where they feel they can make decisions that are centered around their best interests and present a face to the world that doesn't necessarily look like the empirical arm of an American empire. And again, that's something that we as a society don't necessarily accept and don't understand totally that we have to accept other cultures and not overrun other cultures and take from other cultures, that we need to figure out a way to live in harmony and in congruence with other cultures. And that's usually what I take away from my travels. I've been to South Asia, like I said, been to Africa, been to different parts of Europe, been to South America, Central America. And you notice again that people are all the same in the idea that we all eat, we all sleep, we all drink water, and we don't have the right like, to impose our will on other people simply because imposing our will will produce outcomes that are in our best interest. These are the ideas that we're trying to get away 
from in order to move this society forward and be a more positive and productive society. That was retired NBA star player David West. August is Political Prisoners Month, a time to remember those captured while resisting U.S. government oppression and to step up efforts to free those prisoners that are still behind bars. Jihad Abdul Mumit is a former Black Panther who spent 23 years in prison. He's now co-chair of the Jericho Movement and a member of the Black is Back Coalition for Peace, Social Justice, and Reparations. The coalition recently held a conference under the banner Fight for Black Power and Free All Political Prisoners. I just want to salute my comrades on the Black is Back Coalition all of their stellar work in this movement, their longevity in the movement, their consistency. We want today to really get down to the nuts and bolts and utilizing these two days to really see what we as attendees in this conference, and for those that are listening, that we will get this recording, what exactly we can do to support our freedom fighters that are in prison at this particular time. Before we go through this PowerPoint, I just wanna make some connections uh, that Chairman O'Malley made in the beginning for those that were able to hear it. It was that, like the Black Panther Party, we were able to form strategic coalitions to do the work because one organization cannot do it alone. So when we talk about movement in the real sense of the term, we have to be talking about the solidification and that solidarity and actual work. And I want to say the Black is Back Coalition is doing just that. We're picking up the baton that, as, as Brother Glenn said, has been dropped for almost two decades or more after the, de uh, the demolition of the Black Liberation Movement by the counterintelligence program. But now that baton is being picked up. And I want to say, sisters and brothers, that any movement that professes to champion the human rights of poor and oppressed people, any movement that professes to, to, to challenge and combat police violence against our people, any movement as we see today that is trying to bring radical changes to society that does not incorporate at the top of the list the freedom of freedom fighters that have went before them is hypocritical. And that hypocrisy is not necessarily by design. It is through our own ignorance. And it's ironic that today that we have cell phones and technology to be able to have access to this information where back in the 60s, in 1966, when the Black Panther Party was established, we didn't have these things and the formation of movements was stronger. So we need to really get up to speed on what we're doing and, and avail ourselves to the mediums that we have, educate ourselves. Many of the Panther uh, comrades, when we joined, myself, Mumia, Ashanti, Austin, many, many more, Cisco Torres, Chongo Munjes, all of us were in our, we were teenagers. We were teenagers. We didn't have somebody with gray in their hair leading us along, trying and beg us to see what our history was. We made it a point to find out. Now we have this device here, iPhone, Android, find out your history and who, it, and who we are and what needs to be done. That's my challenge to you. I just want to make a point that when we talk about George Floyd, I want to make a historical reference to the fact that um, back in 1968, April the 6th, one of the first Panthers that was slain by the police was a brother named 
Robert James Hutton, also known as Little Bobby Hutton. So these police killings of our, of our warriors and soldiers have to be, we have to re remember these things. It's not just George Floyd, it's historical and it's been going on. It's not just the capturing of this to see what they're doing to our people on the cell phone because you can look in any history book, John Hope Franklin, uh, Lerone Bennett, any history book. Back in the day, they have uh, dozens of pictures of us hanging from trees, what they did to us for the cell phone phenomena and catching it on camera. We've been knowing what's happening and we have to respond to that. So I wanna go through some of the, uh, the, the freedom fighters on the, um, on the Jericho website. And for anybody that's listening, that'll be www.com. And there's a movement uh, with the defense, the goal of, de of defending, representing, and freeing our captive soldiers. That is the exact goal of the amnesty movement that was started in 1998 by Jalil Abdul-Mutakin, still incarcerated, almost at 50 years in prison now, and by the late Safu Bikari and Herman Ferguson. So let's talk about Brother Romain Chip Fitzgerald, one of the longest held political prisoners. Do you know him? If not, then you need to go to our website and know him. Everybody listening needs to adopt at least one political prisoner. And what does that adoption mean? That means you will write him. That you mean you will send him commissary money. That you mean that you will check on his welfare and his well-being, if he's going to the pro board, that you'll position yourself to write letters in support of this prisoner, that you'll put him on your or her on your Facebook page so that you'll do just that much, even if it's just the press of a button on your computer, to keep this brother's welfare safe and sound. Ed Poindexter, one of the Omaha two, and Brother Mondo uh, Wilanga was had passed away in prison a couple of years ago. These two brothers were incarcerated on some bogus, fictitious charges. And with the local counterintelligence contrivance there, still needs your help. This is Angela Davis, co-defendant on a Marin County shootout. And he was incarcerated six years even before that. So do the math. Do the math. When you're incarcerated from the early 60s until now, how long do you think this, this political prisoner has been in prison? Do you know him? What is his mental state of mind? What is his well-being? We need to capture the address, write him, send him money, and see what support. Even if he dies in prison, at least he will know that his efforts and sacrifice in the movement have not been in vain, and that people are upholding his legacy and his well-being as long as he remains alive. Hugo Pinnell, in, in the segregation unit for so long, when he was finally released out in the yard, he was assassinated, which means how we have to really be on top of supporting our prisoners, so that, that the prison authorities know, that they know that these, these individuals are supported by the community and you just cannot viciously assassinate them on the prison yard. When uh, Glenn Ford talked about, when he was doing the roll call on the political prisoners a while ago, he mentioned the VI-5. Now there are three brothers left, uh, Merrill Smith or Malik Smith, Brother Abdul Aziz and Hanif Shabazz Bay. They're incarcerated in a place called Citrus County Jail in Florida. They need your support. We have an active campaign going on for them right now, trying to get them to go to the pro board. Other than that, they will have to do 80 years minimum in prison, which means that their release dates will be 2054. We need to acknowledge them and recognize their sacrifice to the movement. They need your help. They need your letters. They need your support. Jalil Mutakim, captured in 1971, Black Panther, Black Liberation Army, and co-founder of the National Jericho Movement, growing up from the Pro Board. And next month, he has the opportunity to be free. You need to be in tune with the Jericho Movement and the Black is Back Coalition to see what action steps we can take as he goes to the Pro Board. 
if you want to hear our ironic thing about the deficiencies of our movement and how important it is for us to be on task. Jalil filed a compassionate release and was ordered immediately released by a white judge. The person that kept him in jail was a black elected attorney general for the state of New York. The white judge ordering him released immediately. The black attorney general saying, no, don't let this brother be released and prevailing. Well, he just had a hearing on appeal denial recently and the same judge ordered him a new parole hearing. So what is this saying about our strength of our movement? We have to put pressure, as Brother Ralph said, on these officials, get them out of office, as Diop said, move them out on a local level so that we won't have to be going through these situations without comrades in prison. Russell Maroon Shelts, in very bad health condition. When we look at Russell Maroon Shelts, we look at a true warrior for our people. Maroon Schultz in prison, been, he's been in segregation for decades, now he's out. Now he has life-threatening illnesses. He needs your support. Fred Muhammad Burton, incarcerated in the state of Pennsylvania. We just recently established a Philadelphia uh, chapter of Jericho to represent those many political prisoners in the state of Pennsylvania. These are names that you may not be familiar with. These are our warriors. It's not just the famous ones. It's all these soldiers we need to really get in tune with. Capture the name, capture the address, send these comrades your support. Albert Woodfox, formerly political prison supported by Jericho. He was part of the Angola Three. Look how long he stayed in, in, in the segregation unit. So now I want you to, each and every one of you do, to go into your bathroom and lock yourself in there for, for 30 years. And I'm, I'm being maybe facetious about it, but do that. And you see the pain and suffering that we sacrifice by our efforts in the movement. Support these brothers. He's home now. Jojo Ballin, this is my hero. Assassinated the warden and associate warden. I don't know what you may think about that, but when you pick up a book of Nat Turner, ask yourself, do you see a hero or do you see a criminal? When you look at Jojo, do you see a hero or do you see a criminal? So now what is it? when we take the lives of the slave master, just real talk. These brothers need to be freed. You know that in many countries, Germany and European countries, those brothers and sisters that picked up weapons and fought against the government, they're free now. The United States is holding our captives for decades, for decades and decades and decades. And we have to break this train here. And the only way we can do it by having a powerful people's movement to free all political prisoners, including those that picked up weapons and fought for our people. We should be proud of them, not scared of them. We should be proud of them and supporting them, not afraid of attaching our name to Jojo Balvin. How many of you have a picture of Asada Shakur on your refrigerator? Then I would ask how many of you know Sundiata Kohli, her co-defendant, 83 years old, in prison for decades. So we need to give support to these individuals and we need to make sure that Asada Shakur is totally protected at all times. Sundiata Okoli, U.S. political prisoner. He needs full support, full support. He has the opportunity to get out. The attorney is asking for $30,000. So there's a money value to this. You know, sisters and brothers, it's funny how a lot of this is, is really boiled down when it comes to our freedom fighters to how much money we have to pay to a lawyer because a lawyer is not going to do this for free. So what would it be if Sundiata dies in prison because we couldn't get a couple of thousand dollars that's needed? So we need to be in tune with this. We're not busting down the doors by mass demonstrations. How are you going to get these sisters and brothers out of prison? 
So, so now we have to almost surgically remove them, get to them so that their cases can be brought before the pro board or appeals to governors, people that we didn't vote for or anything like that. But now we have to be and begging them to release our freedom fighters. This is a serious contradiction in the move, movement that has to be rectified. Larry Hoover and Imam Malik, Larry Jeff Fort. So these two brothers had gang leadership in Chicago. They've been politicized in prison and they're in prison so long underneath the ground in Colorado only because of their potential influence. When you look at what a person potentially can do, then you have to neutralize it. Glenn Ford utilized the example of Martin Luther King, assassinated for what he was going to. How would, what was his thinking going to? Anti-imperialist. It went from where he was as a minister to a revolutionary. So the powers that be recognize this evolutionary transformation is happening. And so Larry Hoover and Jeff Ford will be in prison forever because of the potential they can wage they can level in their own communities. So activists in the streets need to be aware of this too, because those activists, to use that word, are becoming revolutionaries. So it's the powers that be, you can believe that they will be, they have already situated themselves to neutralize it, co-opt that, and make it all a capitalist venture. Baranza Bowers, he got paroled uh, over a decade ago and the attorney general stepped in and said he can't go. This is all very unprecedented. This brother has miraculous resilience and strength, and you need to capture his, his name and address and send him commissary, letters of love and support, so that whatever his situation is, you uphold his legacy. That's what it's all about. Bottom line, upholding the legacy so that we will understand that what these sisters and brothers stood for, same issues that we're protesting in the street today. Herman Bell, recently released from prison and you know what the irony of it is, so many people was able to embrace Herman while he was in prison. Now that he's out, the state has him isolated. You can't even be in contact with him. Maybe this nonsense has to stop, sisters and brothers. And the only way they can stop is by building a movement where we have the strength to level demands exactly how we want to be treated as a people. This has to stop. Now he's home. I myself and any other Panther can't even see our comrade. When he was in prison, we can go visit him. Now we're home, we can't see him. That's his constraint. So there, you're home, but you'll be on this plantation forever. Robert Seth Hayes passed away last year, December 26th. And while he was in prison, New York Jericho, under the leadership of Ann Lamb, he had diabetes real bad every day for decades. We have to have medical support and intervention to keep him alive while in prison. You know, we thank Allah much that he was able to come home and live for a year or so before he passed away. So this is the importance of getting our sisters and brothers out. They're getting older. They need our help. Medical issues. You have medical issues? You're 70? You're 80 years old? You have medical issues. So did Robert Seth Hayes, and he's passed away now. Going to the ancestors. Okay, we're going to start with Brother Mal Min. This is a name that I'm quite sure the majority of you don't know. A Muslim brother is definitely a victim of the counterintelligence program. We appreciate the Black is Back Coalition informing this conference so that we can learn who they are. We have to connect our political prisoners, our freedom fighters from days gone by to the movements now. Each and every one of these individuals represented community development, health care for our community. When we talk about Dr. Matula Shakur, he was an acupuncturist. You know, that's talking about healing our communities the defense of our community, as Brother Diop is, is saying. These are brothers and sisters that stood in the vanguard positions. Now they are suffering in prison 
longevity, old age. Malmin Kabir has about a 7% of lung capacity, 7% of lung capacity. That means his, he has to be on an oxygen tank all of the time. The last word I'm gonna say is that the whole point of representing political prisoners is to see how we can get them out. This is not just a, a discussion about who they are as Chairman O'Malley. We're, this is an action program. Black is Black Coalition is an action program. We're, through this conference, we wanted to take it a couple of steps further with you, what we can do to actually free our political prisoners. Salute to everybody, all power to the people. That was Jihad Abdul Mumit, co-chair of the Jericho Movement, which politically, legally, and materially supports U.S. political prisoners. Jorgen Austinson is the son of a former political prisoner. Austinson is with the New York chapter of IWOC, the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. He's part of IWOC's Inside Prison Journalism Project and edits the organization's Twitter page, hashtag PrisonsKill. This project was originated with the request of an inside comrade of ours named Justin Kalibi, who is very interested in journalism and wanting to sort of write and talk about some of the abuses that they have experienced themselves and have witnessed and seen in their seven years in prison. And so this project, which is called Hashtag Prisons Kill and has a Twitter page, which can be found at Prisons Kill on Twitter, was sort of like, just was sort of looking for someone on the outside, sort of of a similar mind and similarly interested in journalism. And that was me because I'm studying journalism in school and really interested in it. And we collaborated with some work for WBAI, where I was interning at the time when we started the project. And just vision for this was that the hashtag prisons kill would be similar to the hashtag me too, or hashtag black lives matter. These different hashtags that have made the rounds on social media over the last few years that sort of connect these different stories of abuse. So with me too, obviously we're talking about sexual abuse of women and with black lives matter, it's a lot about police brutality and, and other issues. But with hashtag prisons kill, we're talking about systemic sort of abuse of prisoners and particularly the fact that the, the conditions of prison very often lead to premature death. So the original hashtag prisons kill essay was written by Justin Kalibi and it was about a friend of theirs when they were incarcerated at MDC Brooklyn, the federal detection complex there in, in Brooklyn. And it was about how a man named Molina got syphilis and was untreated for many months, and they denied antibiotics and wouldn't take them to appointments and stuff that had been set up. And he ended up surviving, but some of the other people that we've tried to tell the stories of on the page didn't survive. All of this is sort of originating from people inside who are interested in telling stories that they've known for a long time, but never really had a platform to talk about. And we've really tried to make this as accessible as possible to incarcerated people. So just vision for it was that there would be a platform for and by incarcerated people that would allow them to talk openly and be represented in the stories. Because so often we see in the media articles or stories about people who are incarcerated, either about their cases or about the conditions in the prison, particularly around COVID and other things, where they don't get interviewed and they don't get asked questions and they don't get to react. And so this is sort of like everything that we do is sort of in the voice of incarcerated people. And reporters, inside reporters for your project, they do, of course, have cases, and those cases do affect the way the prison administration allows them to conduct journalism inside the prison. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what we're seeing now, because Just had been very outspoken about the COVID infection there. 
they're incarcerated in Georgia, in southern Georgia, about 20 miles from where Ahmad Arbery was killed. The virus came in there through the guards in the beginning of July, and it sort of spread like wildfire all around the unit. So the unit that just was in 95% of the people, including just, tested positive. And all throughout this, for about a month, just was writing regular updates about what was happening and sending them to me in the form of letters because they weren't allowed to call because they were sort of on a lockdown because of the virus. And then as that went on, I would post them online. Then what happened on August 6th just was taken by this group of security within the prison called SIS, who are being compared to the FBI of the prison by other incarcerated people that I talked to. And they put us in solitary confinement and didn't explain why and just said that they were under investigation. And we had phone zaps and other ways for people to call and hold these people accountable for what they were doing, because obviously we recognize solitary confinement as torture, particularly for just who had experienced solitary confinement when they were only 18 years old after being arrested. They were basically framed and set up from when they were a minor as a terrorist, basically. And they started having contact with an undercover NYPD or federal agent. At the eight when they were only 16, and he sort of groomed just to eventually get arrested for terrorism. The charge was officially called passing felonious information to terrorists. Right, exactly. But that was a frame up because they had started contact when they were only 16, and they took advantage of the fact that just was really struggling with a lot of personal and family issues at the time and came like an older brother in a certain sense. And yet the state agent was leading them down a path and baiting them into this world that they didn't really understand or want to be part of. And so it really is, I would say, a complete miscarriage of justice. You're in school for journalism and you're part of this project for prison journalism. But does journalism school teach you anything about doing journalism in prison? No, (laughs) and they don't really recognize that. And certainly I would probably get in trouble with my professors or with other people if they knew that I was taking the stance that I am taking. Because a lot of people talk about journalism in a way that minimizes the humanity of it. We're not really expected to have personal relationships with our sources and things like that. And obviously I do have very close personal relationships with all of the people who contribute to the page because all of them are constantly facing very violent abuse. And they're very brave to come forward and to have these conversations and was trained in journalism classes and in school to have this ethic of objectivity and to distance ourselves from these social issues. Um, I've heard that over and over again in school, but I totally disagree with it because it's not really possible for me to distance myself from the fact that someone that I care about a lot is in solitary confinement. And me and a lot of other people recognize solitary confinement as torture. So if your friend is being tortured, you're going to say something about it and you're not going to just hide behind some sort of ethic of objectivity. We're facing a global crisis right now we were before COVID and mass incarceration and this modern slavery that exists in prison all around the country with all the 2.3 million people that America incarcerates. We're facing a global catastrophe, really, a national catastrophe, at least with that, because it's just so many people whose lives have been so deeply affected by modern day slavery. Well, that's very important that these journalism professors say you shouldn't fraternize with people who are your sources, because every journalist, every television journalist that you see on national television goes to parties with and fraternizes constantly with sources, senatorial sources, judges, the leading billionaires in the country, if they can get invited to that party. 
Exactly. And this contradictions of mainstream media and the corporate complex that we live under are innumerable. They want to hold us to a standard. If we're talking about something that's going to be radical or going to disrupt the status quo, then we're considered to be breaking the rules of journalism. And that's some sort of issue. But at the same time, all of the corporate ruling class of society, as you point out, are so ingrained within the television and mainstream sources where most people get their news. And we're told that your correspondent in the prison in Jessup, Georgia, has been released from solitary confinement. Yeah, and this is obviously great news, but you know, it opens up a whole series of questions about how we'll be able to communicate in the future. I sent about five letters to Just that included printouts of stuff that we had put on the page essays and interviews that I had done with other incarcerated people. And I got about five letters. I have a whole pile of mail in my house that came back and it's considered a security threat. This is other people talking about their experiences in prison, talking about the abuses that they experienced, and that's considered to be a security threat. Meanwhile, putting someone into solitary confinement where they're very much at risk for mental health and other potential risks, that's not considered to be a risk to that person's security, but I'm considered a risk to their security by writing letters that they would very much like to read. And for those who are not familiar with your organization, tell us about the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, known as IWOC. The Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee is a national offshoot of the industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies, and it has a lot of different autonomous chapters all around the country. And in New York City, and that's where I became involved. And a lot of them take a lot of different forms in different places, but the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee basically is a prison abolitionist organization that is fighting to end the prison slavery that's so ingrained in our country from the 13th Amendment until now. And it's an organization that is committed to this sort of militant organizing of prisoners that takes its leadership and its focus from those on the inside. There are so many organizations that work on the issue of so-called criminal justice, but very few of them do the kind of correspondence work that at least that we do with IWOC NYC, because our work and our organizing gets all of its leadership from those inside. And so we're writing letters constantly. We're talking on the phone when we're allowed to do that. We're doing whatever it is that we can to communicate, to make sure that the needs and values of those on the inside are placed at the top, because so often they get misrepresented and co-opted into some sort of position that is not really going to help them. And we saw that in New York City recently, the mayor wanted to build four new jails for $11 billion and promise that Rikers might be closed by 2026. And they co-opted certain people who had been formerly incarcerated on Rikers into speaking for that. But we know that spending $11 billion on building more jails is not going to help people when we could end homelessness in New York City for you know, much less than that. And that would help people. So a lot of our analysis and leadership comes from those inside. And I feel like that's so important for anyone claiming to be a prison abolitionist. So that's why, like, we started the Prison Skills Project, because you can't say that you want to have inside leadership and then not make it accessible. Like the words of those on the inside need to be accessible and shared among different people who want to engage with the idea of prison abolition. So we created the Twitter page so that people would have the opportunity to just hear the uncut truth of what's happening inside. And so there's a lot of interviews, there's a lot of articles and essays and poems and all that stuff. And anyone who might listen to this broadcast who wants to share a story of their time in prison, or maybe they have a friend in prison or something who wants to communicate, I would very much encourage them to get in touch with us on Twitter, or they can write to us. We have an address 
They can reach out on Twitter if they want to. At Prisons Kill on Twitter. You can write to Albert Jackson uh, at P.O. Box 863-50 U.S. Highway 46, Pine Brook, New Jersey, 07058-9998. August 21st marks the 49th anniversary of the assassination of George Jackson. And so we see what the risks are. We know the history of what prison abolition is and what fighting and organizing prisoners means because the state is constantly going to attack people that call it into question. And George Jackson is so much a hero to this movement and to everyone in this country because he was a man who did not compromise in his activism and his standing up for freedom and justice for all. So those are the risks that people face. And you see how someone could get thrown in solitary confinement just for writing words on a page and then having them be posted by someone on the outside. So we're up against incredibly well-organized and horrifyingly effective machine in the United States government. And when you call up the Bureau of Prisons, which we've done many times, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, you can't even call like the regional office because they've disconnected the phone because we were trying to call the regional office because we wanted to put pressure on them to reach down and talk to the prison specifically about what was happening. And you can't even talk to them. They've disconnected the phone. You can't even leave a message. But you can if, you, if you're on the, the main call line for the Federal Bureau of Prisons, you can request to build a prison and you can get in touch with them about potentially a contract with Unicor, this prison slavery corporation that profits immensely off of free labor. We call that slavery when we're thinking about it critically. Jorgen Ostensen of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, IWOC. U.S. prisons are among the worst places to be during a pandemic, but Vice Television News reporters recently shined a light on COVID-19 behind bars and their revelations seem to have made a difference. Prison Radio has this report from the California penal system. My name is Ivan Kilgore, and uh, I am the founder of the United Black Family Scholarship Foundation, and I'm calling you from Solano State Prison in Northern California. Let's go back to March of 2020. What's happening in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation? At this particular time, what the department is doing is they're issuing memorandums to the public and in the prison population, basically saying that they are providing us with uh, social distancing, soap, infectants, things of that nature, which someone who's been incarcerated for over 20 years and actually in prison reading this stuff, I'm like, okay, where is this stuff? They wasn't passing out none of that. And so what happened, uh, eventually, I was, uh, in, I was contacted uh, by the administration and informed that there had been a Vice News video that was made. I guess it received, you know, three or 400,000 reviews. And they were uh, basically saying that okay, we got you in this video, and this video, what it shows is basically CDC is not holding up on the end of the bargain in terms of social distancing and all that. So what happens as a result of this whole issue instance with this video, uh, we start to see the staff retaliating in my particular case. And what they do initially was they go throughout the pod that I live in, and they search like 10 Mexican cells. 
Now, I don't know if people understand the nature of race relations in the California prison system, but when they did this, on top of it, they said, hey, we did, we're searching yourself on account of Kilgore filming a video in the prison. So you can imagine the type of blowback that created in terms of racial tensions and things of that nature within the prison. And this is a common practice of the prison administration when they want to retaliate against an alleged whistleblower. So uh, fortunately, I was able to defuse that situation. And when that situation didn't work out to the likings of the department, uh, the next thing I was issued a disciplinary uh, ticket for possession of a cell phone, which was never found in my possession, my cell, or anything to that effect. And as a result of being found with that, uh, accused of that cell phone and being found guilty of that write-up, uh, I'm now being put up for transfer to a, a COVID hotspot in Imperial Valley, which is on the other end of the state. Again, this is how the California Department of Corrections uh, operates with regards to whistleblowers. Now, the good thing that came out of this whole situation, uh, apparently this video on Vice News caused enough, uh, a lot of statewide controversy within the Department of Corrections at the headquarters, and they immediately stepped their game up at this prison, which is Solano. And we saw in the aftermath of that release of that video, uh, them coming through, passing out masks, disinfectant, soap, uh, social distancing, and even going to the extent of making the officers wear masks and enforcing that. Of course, you know, behind the scenes, a lot of people get lax with that. Uh, outside of that, uh, the COVID situation here at this prison has, it's not like San Quentin where they had that major outbreak. And I say it's not like that because, again, you had that initial instance back in the beginning of April with this Vice News video that kind of sounded the alarm and put a lot of spotlight on this prison. So they're pretty much ahead of, you know, keeping, keeping the COVID outbreak under control. So we see uh, medical staff that are coming through here regularly doing temperature checks. We're seeing isolation units in here for any individuals who may uh, show COVID symptoms. And we're seeing the administration enforcing both staff and prisoners to wear masks. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.